Hi, Avery. Hi, this is so fun. It's so nice to have you on the pod. Um, would you like to introduce yourself first for anyone who is living under a rock and doesn't know who you are? Oh, uh, my name is Avery Treffelman. Um, I'm a podcaster, which is always like the most embarrassing title, but I don't really know what else to say. I uh, host I a podcast. I think being a YouTuber is more embarrassing. So Okay, touche, touche, touche. <laughs> Everything's embarrassing. What are jobs? But I make a podcast called Articles of Interest about fashion. So I was doing a, a deep dive on you as as one does. And first of all, you have a Wikipedia page, which I'm really jealous of because I feel like once you have a Wikipedia page, it's like you've been solidified as a human in the in the historical <laughs> canon. <laughs> but you do have a pretty extensive history working in radio and podcasts. And I found you through your Articles of Interest podcast, but I also found out you were a producer for 99% Invisible. You hosted the Cuts podcast. How did you get started with this medium? I I loved radio. Like I was a radio person. Yeah, I just grew up listening to the radio all the time. And I'm a I'm a public media nepo baby. My parents met working at WNYC. Um, which is <laughs> so funny. I was like seeing all the nepo baby discourse, I was like, okay, it me. But I mean, they they would tell me amazing stories about their time. Like they both worked at WNYC for like a decade, over a decade, and they loved it. That I mean, they're like photographs of them with big 80s hair, wearing big 80s coats, like smoking cigarettes, cutting audio with a knife. And I was just like, that's so cool. And it was really lucky because that meant not only did they love the radio and we grew up listening to it, but they were totally like, yeah, that's a job. It wasn't like a lot of, I was very lucky to have parents who were like, you can totally do that. That we did that. Um, and I think a lot of, a lot of parents are confused by like how media works and what it even is and the thing I loved about radio is that it was so anonymous that like no one knew who you were and I loved this era of NPR when we were like Lakshmi Singh what does she look like we have no idea like her voice comes on the radio and she's just a mystery and um so I really wanted to work in radio I interned at NPR and it was this like battle royale they were like you know maybe you'll get hired after this internship and I did not get hired and I did, I just like applied to so many jobs in radio and I couldn't get a job in radio. And then I applied to be an intern at this little show called 99% Invisible that I always loved. And this like, I don't know, it felt so like pirate radio. It felt so punk. It was like, oh, it's not radio. It's a podcast. You can curse on it. And then that internship just turned into a job and I worked there for seven years. And then podcasting was sort of an accident. And podcasting is so different than radio because you, as you know, like your art is literally your face. There's no question of of like, oh, what does this person look like? It's so much more about right. personality and image in podcasting. It's it's like a very different tool than radio in some good ways and some bad ways. Okay, but I challenge you. I raise you. Did you ever watch Delilah? <laughs> is this another Disney Channel movie? What is no. this? No, 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 no. This is this was like a radio show that I was obsessed with. As like, a, I don't. I think this was like the only radio show that I watched. Um, or I, sorry, I watched, I listened to with my mom. <laughs> she would drive me to piano lessons and on the way back, it'd be like 7 p.m., which is when Delilah would come on and we would listen. But she just like played music, but she would also like do Q and A's. It was kind of like, um, like an ask 
like a, an advice column where people would call in and they'd be like, can you play a song? Like I'm going through this like rough time, like blah, blah, blah. And she'd always play the same like 10 songs. <laughs> like, I love that. Anytime I love that someone had so a baby, much. it was like, isn't she lovely by Stevie Wonder. That was like the go-to ah! song. <laughs> Oh my god, that is the magic of radio right there. That's incredible. <laughs> Delilah. I have to look that up. You do. I think I, mean, I don't know if she still do. I feel like she could. I feel like there's no like point with radio where you age out, which is like the nice thing, right? Can I can I like kind of turn your question back on you a little bit? Like yeah, why sure. do you want to do audio? I I feel like all the audio people are like we have to get on YouTube. We have to be visual. Like why really? did you choose to make the the leap? Yeah. Well, Oh my god, my cat is like trying to climb into my lap as I'm talking. Um, I feel like for audio, I just enjoy listening to it. So if I enjoy something, I kind of also want to be part of like that creative process. You know, like I want to be an actor because I love movies and I love theater and I like wanted to do YouTube because I loved watching YouTube. And I also think that there's a lot of restrictions with YouTube that I've been having difficulties with. Now that has made me like more intense with like the whole podcasting pivot because YouTube censorship has gotten so rigid. And it's like what you said before, like podcasts, you can curse on a podcast. Wow. Um, I had no idea. Yeah. It's like it's very draconian because they will censor you via like an algorithm. And sometimes it can take up to like seven days for them to have a human review it. Which, oh my god. Based on like a YouTube posting schedule, you know, you also have to like be posting very consistently or else like the algorithm will like punish you for taking a break. So it's just like very stressful of a medium to be on. And I also, I don't know, I think that there's a weird freedom that I have when I'm like talking into a microphone when the camera isn't on. Um, Because even though like I do record with camera on, just like the way that I talk and like the way that I present, I'm very like self-conscious about how I look and I'm very like aware of how long it's taking me to get to a certain point when I'm talking. Hmm. Whereas like, I don't know, maybe like for better or for worse for a podcast, I'm like, blah, 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 like lying in my bed, like blah, 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 blah. <laughs> <laughs> but you've been in like podcasts for a long time and you were you know, you said you grew up with radio. So I'm wondering, how have you noticed the audio landscape changing, um, especially like since 2020, when I felt like that's when so many people were launching their own podcasts? I know. I mean, honestly, people ask me this sometimes. And I'm like, I have no idea what's going on. This is so bananas. It's so wild. I mean, God, so much has changed. And I feel like there was this big boom and there were all these podcasting companies and now a lot of them are folding. And um, I just like, it, it feels like it's all getting like exploding into a million little galaxies right now. Like the traditional media landscape is is kind of falling apart. And I I don't know, it's kind of weird because the only thing that I know for sure is like that the, the kind of shows that I make documentary style shows are not sustainable and arguably like waning in popularity. No, no, no. It's fine. It's like is the way it is. And that's the only thing I know for sure. And it's sort of like, huh, what do I do about it? Like, do I change? Do I fight it? And I think about this all the time because it, it it's almost like when you see trends in fashion change and you're like, okay, 
I really like this style and now it's going away. And like, do I stick with it? Right. Am I no longer cutting it? Like, I feel this about like, you know, like the high-waisted pants discourse. I was like, man, I liked those. Like those looked really good on my body. Do I stick with them? Do I resist the tide? Do I look out of date intentionally? And like, right. these are the kinds of questions I'm asking myself sort of about my medium. I just think that like people are way more into, like myself included, are way more into like talky, blah, blah, blah sort of <laughs> shows. Because I, I don't know, it's nice to, it's more like radio, really. You sort of like mm. zone in and out and certain parts reach you and certain parts don't. And I feel like the kind of work I make, I'm like, you have to pay attention. And I don't think people are as interested in that anymore. Do you know if people are still interested in like documentaries as a whole or is it just like, audio documentaries that people are waning interest in that's a great question i don't know i mean i like oh, so my boyfriend works in film and i'm maybe like a little too overeducated in this because like everyone in hollywood right now is thinking about like the writer's strike and if you think about you know the heyday of um reality tv like survivor and stuff like that mm -hmm. that happened because there was a writer's strike people are like oh we need unscripted shit to <laughs> to make wow and okay. so I think there's another world where whatever is happening in like scripted impacts what's happening in, in doc, not because mm. it's easier to make, but because it just requires fewer writers uh, and more producers. So I don't know. It's so funny. It, it, it's not unlike fashion. It's like, is it because consumers want it? Is it because it's what's expedient to make? I don't really know. I don't really know. I mean, I've been watching fewer documentaries, I feel like. But then again, I feel I just feel like I've been consuming less of everything. I don't know. Have you been consuming a lot? I've been consuming way less, too. But I think it's also because I'm like a workaholic these days where I just like I don't even have a social life at this moment. Mm -hmm. But that will end when I graduate in June. Um, Congratulations. Uh, <laughs> I think like obviously like during the pandemic, we had so much time in quarantine to consume so much content we'll never get back to that amount of content that we've consumed because like i i hope we won't ever like be in a circumstance where everything will yeah. shut down again yeah um, even though you say like people's interest in documentaries is going away last year um the new york times the new yorker and all these like major publications ranked your articles of interest podcast as like one of the best po podcasts of 2022 it was so um, cool that was yeah. awesome i am interested to know why you got started in fashion history especially because when we were talking before the recording um you said you were first doing like architecture so why not create a podcast on architecture the first the easiest answer is like well i did work on it i worked on a podcast about architecture for seven years and I loved it. It was like the most amazing job. And then two things happened. One was I realized like after seven years, I actually sort of knew too much. I was suddenly in the room with these architects being like, ha ha ha, like making jokes about postmodernism and just being insufferable. I was like, oh, I'm not actually an outsider anymore. I can't explain it in an understandable way anymore. And I wanted to branch out to a new medium where I didn't know what I was talking about. So I could have that like fresh perspective again and yeah actually three things happened so that was that was one thing I was like oh, I think I'm like getting too well versed in this and then a long time ago when I was 16 actually I saw an exhibit of uh the work of Vivian Westwood and that mm. changed my life because I had no idea that 
punk had to be like invented, that someone invented that. Yeah. And, you know, we all know the cerulean blue <laughs> monologue. Like we understand that like, okay, fashion trickles down from the top. But like something about seeing like a fashion designer invented punk and like subverted our idea of what is beautiful and like changed what is possible for beauty standards. And it became adopted by the streets, you know, really seeing that it came from like a designer in a boutique and now like anyone can wear it and it belongs to the people. That was shocking to me. That was so cool. And I was like, oh, this feels like an episode of 99% Invisible. This feels like something we would do, even though it's very much like fashion. And then the other thing that happened was honestly, when I was at 99% Invisible, um, I wanted to do a story about the border wall when Trump was erecting the border wall prototypes. And it just made me so mad that I was I was like, this this architectural thing is happening. This like huge thing is happening. And there's like nothing I can do about it. There's like nothing. I would talk to architects and they were like, yeah, there's nothing we can do about it. Like, you don't need an architect to build a wall. That's just a developer. And it made me realize that like we don't have a lot of control over the buildings we live in. Like I didn't build this apartment, you know, like this. It just is. And buildings are so big and they're so wasteful and they have a lot of the same problems that the clothing industry has. Lord, no, like I don't have to tell you how wasteful and bad the clothing industry is. However, like we do absolutely control what we put on our bodies mm. every morning. We have way more of an individual buy-in. Not that the industry is reliant on our individual consumer choices. It's like a big systemic thing, blah, blah, blah. But we just like engage with it on an interpersonal level. Each individual knows so much more about clothing than they do about like ADA compliances for toilets. Like what <laughs> what happens in architecture world is so removed from us. Uh, so uh, yeah, I liked, I liked talking at a more human scale and like, Fashion, as you know, fashion's fascinating. It's like the most interesting thing. And right. everyone's so nice in fashion. I was expecting everyone to be like really stuck up Miranda Priestly, but like, <laughs> you're all nerds. I feel like, well, okay. So I think there's multiple sectors of like the fashion industry because I feel like people who are in the fashion history space are yes. very, very, very sweet. And I, I have like a lot of friends who are like specifically in like vintage and they're I have a friend, Dandy Wellington, and he's fantastic. He's like a Harlem Renaissance inspired singer. He dresses in like 1920s clothing and he throws this Easter party every year. And it's just like the most fun thing because people are like dressed up to the nines, like wearing these like ginormous hats. And they're also so fun. And it's very welcoming. And then I feel like I've gone to a lot of like modern fashion industry events and some of the people are really nice, but it is very much like we are here to network. And I think that can feel like a little bit icky, but I don't necessarily think it's much different from like any other type of industry, like a modern industry. Um, yeah. I think the Devil Wears Prada makes it look really bad. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's kind of like the last episode you were saying about like ma fashion magazine culture. And like, mm -hmm. I, I just think the power has been redistributed in a in a fascinating way that it's so much more about what wearers think and what like curious consumers think more than any like editor. Right. Um, and that's really changed the attitudes in the fashion world in like a really cool way. 
yeah, it's definitely democratized it. Um, though I think there's like an old guard that's still there that's like very upset that all these influencers are taking up seats and like especially TikTokers. For some reason, they really hate the TikTokers. <laughs> I think because they're so new. I think people have gotten kind of accustomed to the idea of like a fashion blogger and an Instagram model like being there. But uh, the TikTok, <laughs> it's, it's very contentious still. Fascinating. And, yeah. And I think people will not be so mean to your face anymore. I think <laughs> I mean, I wasn't around in like the 90s and 2000s. I was alive, but I wasn't around the yeah. fashion. <laughs> I was around the fashion space. But it seems like people were just like okay with talking about like if this person looked fat or like, right. you know, just extremely judgmental comments like, I don't like the way that you are dressed. Um, whereas now, because of like all these social progresses that we've made, like, some people may think that, but they're definitely not going to say it. So I think that's also like contributed to a nicer atmosphere. 100,000%. I mean, I have to say, I really feel like the attitude has even changed. You know, I made the first season of Articles of Interest in 2018. And like, I cannot tell you how much the attitude has changed even from 2018. It is wild. Like the way that people are engaging with fashion and talking about fashion and are like game to to analyze it as like a cultural product mm -hmm. is so, 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 so different. I remember I had such a hard time booking guests because people would get really insulted when I told them that I wanted to talk about clothes. It was really interesting. Like there was a story that I remember I wanted to do about meteorologists because it's really fascinating like I was I was reading an article about how meteorologists often like their outfits are not paid for by the network, but they have to wear something different every day. That's so actually very these, cool. It's fascinating. And so there are these groups of meteorologists and they share dresses. They like ship dresses back and forth so that like, you know, your weather woman in Topeka is secretly wearing the same dress as like your weather woman in Pocatello or they're like all buy if they find a cheap dress. They're like, oh, everyone buy this dress and it can't be black and it can't be green because it can't blend in with the, they're like all these rules and it has to be professional, but it can't be too sexy. They're like all these rules about how meteorologists dress. And like, these are scientists and they have to think about this. It's so interesting. So I was trying to reach out to them, you know, in 2018 to be like, can we talk about this dress thing? And they were so insulted. They were like, I'm a scientist. I can't believe you want to talk to me about this. And I was like, no, 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 but that's the point. <laughs> the point is that I want to say that like you're a scientist. And I think there was this idea that like, if we're talking about fashion, especially, you know, these were broadcasters. They, Lord knows they had seen so much misogyny. They were so on guard right. about it. And I just think now there's, I think especially because fashion historically has been the realm of like, women, queer people, young people, people of color, there's like a richer understanding that like, oh, this is a text. Like we can read this. It matters. And so I think that this is a long full circle way of saying, <laughs> I think it's also changed the fashion world. I think a lot of fashion writers and magazine editors, like people who I've talked to and become friends with who, you know, I think even a few years ago, I would have been terrified of, who I would have been like, oh, they're, you know, gate keepy and mm -hmm. snarky i mean everyone just wants to like learn everyone wants to read books and and learn and talk about history in this awesome way like it just got nerdier and i i think that's just because like the general public is taking it seriously and that rules 
yet no one wants to watch documentaries. <laughs> yet no one wants to watch documentaries. This is true. This is true. This is true. Well, okay. So I do want to ask you some questions about your American Ivy series um, because I actually re-listened to it and it was – Oh, thanks. Yeah. No, it was better the second time because I think usually when I listen to things, like I'm not going to listen – Fully, like I'm kind of doing other yeah. things, so there were things that I missed that I uh, I got down because <laughs> I was like active listening. Um, but what got you interested in the Ivy fashion to begin with? And also, what is your favorite element of the Ivy style? Just for fun. Oh my god! Well, can I say I love tennis sweaters? My big takeaway was I got a J Press tennis sweater. Where is yours from? This one? Um, it's from Rowing Blazers. Oh. They did such a good job. It's, it's also so like a good. men's sweater because they didn't sell a women's version, which was like kind of annoying to me because it's like a little bit too big. But yeah. Um, oh, but that's part of the look. That's... Oh, yeah. It's like a slouchy, like relaxed. Yes. <laughs> Borrowed from the boys. I love that. But um, I was really into rowing blazers because they did that collaboration, um, remaking the Princess Diana sweaters. And I had that like big Princess Diana fixation when the crown came out. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, so. No, I love I love those sweaters. Yeah, I was almost I almost talked to someone from Rowing Blazers, but I had to like call. There were just like too many people mm. to to talk to. But yeah, I got started thinking about Ivy, honestly, because I had to make another season of Articles of Interest to like live. This is yeah. the thing I always say. I'm always like, deadlines are your friends. Like. <laughs> If I didn't have deadlines, if I didn't have to make work to like eat and pay rent, I sound like Adam Smith right now, but I I really do think that like the invisible I hand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If we don't give people, if we don't make people work, they'll be lazy. I'm only speaking for myself that like <laughs> I look for ideas because I have to and I like tight deadlines. I'm like, oh, you need this in, you know, a week. Um, but basically I was told I need to make another season. I was honored. I didn't know what to make it about. And I was going to make it about trends because as you well know, as everyone was coming out of lockdown being like, what are we wearing guys? Like, <laughs> is it gnome core? Is it clown core? Are sweatpants dead? Are sweatpants back? Like what's happening? And the trend discourse was just like out of control. And so I thought it would be fun to do a series of episodes each about different trends. I was like, oh, what about like braver pants and choker necklaces and uh, like lots of different trends. And then one of them was going to be preppy and I was thinking more about like Abercrombie and Fitch and mm. that sort and I had just seen the Abercrombie and Fitch documentary and I was like oh it'll be interesting to sort of delve into that a little bit more and then if you do even you know the tiniest amount of reading if you if you like begin to give it a cursory google as I know you did immediately <laughs> you're like whoa this is so much deeper yeah than I mean, you're getting at the roots of like, what is class? How do you dress like a rich person? Like what, you know, where did this idea come from? And it's like an old, old, old story. And, and it's funny, I wasn't actually originally planning on making it a multi-part series. Originally, I was like, okay, I'll do one episode. And I was like, oh, maybe this is two parts. And I was like, maybe three, maybe five, <laughs> maybe seven. Oh God, it's seven. Because I really don't believe in stretching things out just to like make them longer. Like you can tell mm. when someone's vamping. But like, honest to God, this like there's too much ground to cover. I have I need seven episodes. It's so rich. And I barely cover. I like barely scratch the surface. When I read the J. Crew book, you know, they summarize all of American Ivy basically in the first chapter. And then the rest is like what happened when J. Crew took over. Like it's the, the great American story. It is such a saga. Can you tell us the difference between 
prep, Ivy, and then this new idea that you kind of hinted at, which is like stealth, wealth, quiet, luxury. Yeah. What are there marketable differences between all these terms? Yeah. So Ivy was a distinctive style, mostly sort of in the interwar period. This is like a period extending roughly from like the night, the earliest incarnations of it are like 1920s into the 1960s. And that is a very like mad men, you know, everyone's wearing tweeds and, and browns and um, very like old school collegiate looking mid century stuff. Like, right. If you're thinking about uh, animal house, like that's how they're dressing. Like that's, that's Ivy. And that was called Ivy. It's so funny to think that it, like I talked to someone, she actually didn't make the final cut of the, of the podcast series, but she went to like an all girls school in the South. Cause I was very curious. I was like, is this like a Northern thing? Like, were you trying to look like Ivy league schools? And she was like, you know what? I never realized that that's why we called it Ivy. But like in all the department stores, it was just called the Ivy look. Like, I don't know why. Uh, so that was Ivy. And that was like marketed that way. And then in the eighties, Basically, Ivy makes a comeback, but now it's called Preppy, named after like prep school. And that's where you get like Lacoste shirts and like bright colors and like just way louder, way sportier, way more country club, tennis club. It's sort of like the the universe of Ivy expands mm -hmm. into vacation wear, sporty wear. It's not necessarily only... For it's school. like what they're doing off campus too. Yes. It's what they're doing off campus. That's what they're doing as adults. You know, it's like the, the world, the world expands. And then it's like L.L. Bean gets in there. So it gets a little bit more rugged. It gets a little bit more outdoorsy. It gets a, a little more androgynous because Ivy was mostly like for men because that's yeah. who was in college campuses in the interwar period. Uh, preppy is way more androgynous. Yeah. So that's, that's sort of preppy. But then, you know, it's really interesting because a lot of places have talked to me about the idea of stealth wealth. And I just think that, like, this has always been a thing. Like, if you read Edith Wharton books, you know, yeah. she's she's like, you don't want to be too loud. Like, you just, you don't want to, you don't want to, like, it's a great Edith too much voice. <laughs> yeah, totally. Like, you know, at the opera, she's like, I can't believe that so-and-so is wearing her new dresses from Paris. You're supposed to wait a year before you put on the your sparkly stuff. Right. It's just like, it's all about like, keep it. Don't, don't be too loud. It, like that's been the hallmark of old money forever. Right. It's like, mm -hmm. I don't need to show it. I just have it. And I think there is an element of stealth, wealth, quiet luxury in preppy i mean that's part of why you know a huge reason that the preppy look blew up in the 80s was because of this one book called the preppy handbook and the whole premise of the preppy handbook which was published in 1980 was like there are rich people everywhere and like <laughs> i'm gonna teach you how to find them and they're like they don't they, they look normal in fact their clothes even look a little rugged and like a little dirty but they're they're rich and i'll show you and i think especially in america where we're so obsessed with this idea of like, what? We don't have a caste system. We don't mm. have a class system. Like, we're, this is a democracy. We all just sort of dress the same. We're like obsessed with the idea of finding out who has more money, like right. through all these little symbols. I mean, the main example that I think of is like, I worked at a company once 
where I could never find where my boss was sitting because she didn't have a corner office. She was just like in the cubicles oh, with us. Okay. But it didn't mean I didn't have a boss. Like there was someone who was higher than me. It's just like we pretended we were all on equal footing because right. like, we're all here in the cubicles. Like this just makes it harder. <laughs> and I feel like that's America. We're all like in the cubicles, but some people are secretly bosses and some people are And some people aren't. get and, paid like, more. <laughs> exactly. Like, and we're like, how can we figure it out? How can we know? And it's just as easy for us by, yeah, to be like, we're a democracy and to be like, well, some, some of us know that that's not, that's not true. And the knowledge that that's not true is the sign that you're like in on it and like wise, wise to it. So we're just like, we're obsessed with this. We are so obsessed with this even when there's like loud luxury right even mm. when there's like logos and brands it's like well what's real what's a knockoff what right. season was that oh my god like we just can't help we can't stop it we're so obsessed with it it's so stupid but okay i don't know if you've also noticed this but like i feel like in 2019 and especially in 2020 there was this whole eat the rich narrative that was really yeah. taking yeah. root and we had movies yeah. like parasite um, and mm -hmm. Knives Out and, like, TV shows like White Lotus that all poked fun at being wealthy. But I feel like the tide has kind of turned in a weird way where, especially with succession and this idea of, like, now people want to emulate the wealthy again. And I was curious to know your thoughts about that and why you think that's happening, if you believe my hypothesis. <laughs> I think you're right. I mean, I do definitely think there's like, it's not very like eat the rich anymore, but I do think that it's still like embarrassing. You know, I think it, it's such a thing to be like, yeah, I have this handbag, but like I got it on eBay. You know, it's like <laughs> we, we, we are like fascinated by the sort of trappings of it, but I still don't think it's cool to like be a part of that world. Yeah, I think being moneyed is still very embarrassing. But I think we now have this fantasy about old money that it's somehow mm. less harmful than new money. Now that we've watched like Elon Musk ruin Twitter and Mark Zuckerberg ruin democracy, we're like, oh, look at this new money. They're just like they're the worst. And they're mm. they're they're, you know, Silicon Valley Bank. Like we're just watching newly rich people wreak havoc on society and so i think there's this sort of fantasy about like well old money doesn't bother anybody like they're just minding their own business you know with their family and it's right. interesting i was actually having a conversation about this with so with a journalist from france and she was like you americans are all really obsessed with this i was like oh i think it's because we don't have a healthcare system <laughs> and like no really like all we have in america is like the family unit and so we were like, yeah. what if we had a really nice family unit? Like, what if our family was just, like, totally able to take care of us? But I don't know. Like, do you think that pe people want to look rich again? I feel like people love the idea of being like, I look rich, but I I'm an interloper. I think it's difficult because of the way that algorithms work, right? So, right. like, once I'm down one loophole, I suddenly, like, only see that. And I'm like, this is the world. Yes. Um, yes. So it's hard for me to actually be able to say, um, but I have seen so many of these like little guides where it's like how to look like you have money or like how to dress, like kind of like what you were saying before, like how do you identify someone who has a lot of money, which makes me think that people are trying to do that for themselves and kind of cosplay as this rich person and come off like in a way where people are like, oh, I think she has money, even if you don't. Yeah. And 
I don't know. I, I thought that was like an interesting thing trend because I've also seen it particularly with young people. Whereas so like I feel like the uh, stereotype is it, it's like working professionals who are trying to get that kind of like how to dress classy, how to be taken seriously in the workplace. But now yeah. it's like kind of younger college students who are doing it. And yeah, I don't know. Fascinating. I don't know. It's well, it's, it's really interesting also because like the symbols have gotten harder and harder to recognize. Like, you know, Laura Piana, they're whatever. What is it called? Like the cloth of kings. <laughs> like there's no logo on it. You only know what it is if you can physically touch it. Like you have to be mm -hmm. close enough to the rich person in question right. to like even know. And so I feel like as the layers of knowledge have become harder and harder to access, we're like, no, tell me, like scrambling, scrambling for them. And I think it is also very tied up in like wanting to learn about quality and mm. wanting to learn about like what it, you know, what is a nice shirt? How can yeah. you tell if someone has invested in clothes? I wonder if that also has like the interest in it has increased because of social media and the fact that you can't tell the quality of what people exactly. are wearing. Exactly. Um, just from exactly. your screen. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's kind of the brilliant thing about fashion, right? It like transcended the medium. Mm. Like it 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 eludes social media. It's really you gotta you gotta hand it to fashion. Like they did it. So also something that was in your podcast that I learned was how Jewish, Black, and Japanese designers um, played such a big part in developing the Ivy style over time. And why do you think that designers from these backgrounds or just like from backgrounds outside of like the WASP culture that we associate with Ivy, why were they so well equipped to reinterpret the style? Yeah, the fascinating thing about it is like WASPy men are a tiny percentage of the population. Like the metaphor that comes to mind is is really like music. Like I think about how um, so many of the writers of Christmas carols were Jewish, and like oh, I had no what? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Like what's the reason? White Christmas. It's just like oh, because I don't know. We're sort of like insider outsiders. We're like okay, we're white people, but like we don't understand. We're like observing this wasp. We're like okay, Christmas. Have you seen that um, pizza ad that an AI made? No. Oh, it's incredible. It's incredible. Is it a it's jingle? Like, kind of, it's like a, I, I should send this to you. It's like an incredible, surreal, off-putting, strange pizza ad that okay. just sort of like reads consumer culture very well. And I feel like Jews sort of did that with Christmas. We're like, okay, this is what you like Christmas. Like we just got like a very full mm -hmm. understanding of it from the outside. And then in terms of music, Black people took Ivy and rewore it in so many different ways, at least twice in this history, once kind of mid-century and once sort of post-preppy. And both times people compared it to music. You know, like Jason Jules said, you know, it's like how John Coltrane covered my favorite things. It's like a jazz version. And then Dallas Penn was like, no, it was like a remix. Like in the 80s, it was like, you know, we 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 chopped it up and remixed it. And I just feel like, especially with like American Jews and American black people, like these are two cultures that we're used to observing and chopping and remixing and using. And that was sort of inevitable with fashion. And then the Japanese thing, honestly, like that was not like my favorite thing about the story is it was not an inevitability. Like one could easily say, oh, 
Well, America occupied Japan after World War II. So they copied us. And that was not what happened at all. Like, obviously, people didn't want to copy the colonizers after World War II. So, like, how did Ivy get to Japan? That's just a weird, that is a weird story of this, this like one guy who's like the style of clothes rules let's let's do it let's bring it over here so i do think it was sort of inevitable that other groups of americans would take on ivy and make it their own but the japanese thing is just like a weird series of coincidences that that happened you know that's so true too like how people kind of don't understand if a country is colonized, like the people are unhappy about that, like they don't <laughs> want to adapt things. And it just reminded me, I mean, this is like research I did for another podcast, but I was like looking into the whole idea of the half white, half Japanese model in Japan, because in a lot of fashion magazines and a lot of fashion brands, they will like use models that have this like ethnic combo to market their clothes. And I was like interested in it. Hmm. And during when America was like, in Japan during World War II, after World War II, whatever, half white models, half white people in general were like very discriminated against because they were like, it was this idea that they were the product of like prostitution, which is not always the case. It was usually not the case. And like, even if it was the case, that's not okay, right? But like one can understand historically the stigma at the time. Right. Like, yeah. And it was only when people started like forgetting about the world, like, you know, younger generations coming in that that's when they like started adopting um, more American things. And that's when a lot of like half white models started coming up. It's because like the trauma was kind of diminished, not because. Oh, interesting. So interesting. No, but that's Um, such a good point. Like, no, there was like anti-American, like if you dressed American in Japan, like like, it was always just a de facto associated with criminality. It was like, you're no good. (laughs) It's so interesting. So a follow-up question I had is when these like wasp people who are like the the old guard of the American Ivy, when they saw their style being readapted by other groups, was there a negative response or were they kind of just like ignoring it and still doing their own thing? That was the fascinating thing about this to me, right? Like everything we've talked about so far with trends, because trend, like, it's fascinating to talk about trends in the context of wealth and like everything we were just saying before, like, are people interested in this because they want to emulate it? Like, do we want to look rich? Are the rich people going to go, you know, it's, it, it often gets framed as framed as this constant cycle, right? Like rich people dress a certain way, the riffraff want to dress like them. So the rich people find something else. And then the fascinating thing about what happened with Ivy and then with preppy clothes is that it spread out to more and more people and rich people were like awesome like (laughs) it just made them look cool and you see this most notably with like Miles Davis is like the most famous example of this like that guy was preppy like he shopped at the Andover shop he was wearing like button-down shirts and loafers while touring Europe and he just like rocked it. He made, he basically was like a walking advertisement on tour for like, look how cool preppy clothes are. Uh, it just looked, it just looked great. Like, I'm, I mean, I'm sure there were people who were upset or whatever, but by and large, it's not like anybody stopped wearing it. And then like, you know, when Ralph Lauren, you know, born Lipschitz, uh, started manufacturing his version of the polo shirt, I mean, quite literally members of the British aristocracy were wearing his polo shirt. The old, old, old guard embraced all this stuff. 
it's kind of fascinating. And obviously, like, you know, when I talked to Lisa Birnbach, the author of the Preppy Handbook, she was like, yeah, I got a lot of anti-Semitism. Like, you know, what does she know? So again, I'm sure there were like individuals who were like, you know, <laughs> my culture is not a costume. <laughs> but by and large, it's like no one stopped. That's very interesting because you're right. Like I would have expected that once things happen in the mainstream, people would be like, I don't want to wear this now. Like I need to find something else to gatekeep. But, you know, going to how it proliferated in the mainstream, why do you think preppy was like the chosen style? Um, and even like in your podcast, you were talking about how like starting in the 80s, that's when a lot of companies and brands started manufacturing like preppy adjacent clothing as a safe choice as a way to like guarantee sales what do you think is about preppy that yeah, you nailed it it's just like safe it's so safe it's so safe and that's not a bad thing and that was my big lesson after this is like that's not bad to be like legible and understandable in your clothes that's great and i mean when i wear preppy clothes i get the most wide array of compliments from like the most people really because like everybody understands it and there's a version of it in almost every culture any background it's so amazing again it's it's like i said this in the podcast but it's not the it's not the outfit of a subculture it is the outfit of the dominant culture everybody like knows what it's supposed to mean it's so understandable and um i think that's just because it's like been around for a long time and i have this little theory that preppy clothes and cowboy clothes are like two sides of the same coin. Ooh. They're sort of that. Well, they're they're like the two main American styles because they and they represent opposite things, right? Like one is coastal, elite, institutional. The other is like individual, free, institutionless. And in both cases, and you know, one is one is sort of inland. One is coastal. And in both cases, there are people who just dress this way all the time. There are people who just dress waspy all the time for generations and have never stopped. There are people who dress cowboy all the time for generations and have never stopped. And in that way, they will always retain a modicum of authenticity. Always. Like they will, oh, they won't die because there's a huge swath of people who actually dresses this way. And both of them are kind of culturally okay to wear. Like there was this article, this old Anne Helen Peterson article about why there are so many bachelorette parties in Nashville. And it's because it's like a safe costume. Anyone can dress up in cowboy boots and go to a line dance. That's fine. Like that's not insulting to any. I mean, again, I'm sure there are like some gatekeepers, but by and large, like go for it, you know. And so for for all of these, these are sort of all American costumes that are readily accessible to anyone. They're legible to anyone. And then when you put the two together, people lose their minds. Like when Ralph Lauren like combined cowboy and prep, everyone was like, what? And like, you know, Bodie sort of combines cowboy and prep. And it was like, oh, my God, like it's America. <laughs> they did it. So I think that's part of what it's like a safe, legible, understandable, all American style that now has come back in style so many times that it, I'm just convinced it will never, ever, 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 ever. I mean, well. I'll I'll eat my shoe, but like I don't think it'll. <laughs> this is a random story that I just thought of when you were Ooh, talking about yes. cowboys. Um, so for one of my act like one like acting project that I was doing, I was trying to do a southern accent, <laughs> and I was looking on YouTube for just like people speaking in southern accents, and I came across this one video with this Chinese cowboy, 
And he was like born in China and he like immigrated over. So he's not like Asian American. But he was saying that like the locals treat him so well, like these like white cowboys um, because they see him like assimilating into their culture. And he was like, I've actually never dealt with the racism. And I was like, what? So interesting. Yeah. That's so, so interesting. It is interesting. But <laughs> I feel like I've always noticed like Ralph Lauren, but it's been so like also invisible in the American mainstream. Yes. Like everyone yes. just has like yes. something. Yes. But- <laughs> I know. No, that you said it exactly. I was like, oh, do I own any Ralph Lauren stuff? I looked at my closet. I was like, oh my God, I own a bunch of Ralph Lauren. Like, how did this even happen? How do we all own Ralph Lauren? It was and a like, Ralph Lauren I, psyop. Like <laughs> 100%. I was like, what What the hell? And I'd never even thought of him as like a big, but like the dude is Steve Jobs. Like he's an American icon. He's a genius. He's changed fashion forever. We all wear him what like i had no idea do you think that he like his brand is like the biggest prep uh related type of brand in history yes Yes. Yes? okay yes totally like i think he is like i had no idea like what he did like what he means (laughs) for for america our fashion industry you well know this like america's fashion industry is not very old and like mm-hmm. we only recently sort of like wrested it back from France. And then who are the great American designers? Like Jeffrey Bean, Tor- <laughs> Tori Birch, maybe, but like she was yeah. inspired by Ralph. Like he is sort of the great American fashion house that he does like highbrow and lowbrow. He's like the biggest. I'm trying to think of like a bigger American fashion. Well, did designer. you watch the um the Halston TV series with you and McGregor? No, I didn't. But that's a good point. Halston could have been it. Yeah, like, he that could have been. been. It could um, have been Halston. But I bring that up because in it, they covered like a real event that happened, which was like, I think it was the Battle of Versailles or something yes. of that name, where it was like yes. American designers facing off with French yeah. ones. Yeah. And I'm like, was Ralph Lauren part of that or no? No. Okay. And that's the interesting thing is like, you know, he always made like mass produced clothes like he started at bloomingdale's he wasn't like a couturier now he is like now you can get a couture now he does runway shows but um and that's what makes him so american is that he wasn't basically emulating this french model of like oh you know i do high-end gowns and then there's sort of these like trickle down right this trickle down effect he was always making mass produced clothes very much in the style of brooks brothers but brooks Mm -hmm. brothers is not a designer that's a brand right so yes there were Amer- and there have been american design like donna karen is a great example there are of course and like calvin klein but they were all sort of of that circle and i don't think in the same way that you'd be like everyone go to your closet and check if you have something by donna karen like it's just like ralph is so 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 what what we wear it's bananas and you also said that he was selling a lifestyle which is part of his success do you think that there are any brands today who are selling an associated lifestyle i mean kind of all of them right like ralph really modernized fashion marketing but not just being like look at this dress but like building a little world you know he like built this his 
his ads from the 80s and 90s and even 70s, I mean, they look like film stills. Like he built this world and sort of like stuck someone in it. And that's what we see every time there's like a fashion film, you know, mm. a fashion video. Like that's all, that's all about like inviting you into their into their world. Uh, the whole world of like fashion content and the idea that these brands also manufacture stuff for your home and like, you know, yeah. sense <laughs> and complete lifestyle. Like that's from Ralph. It's so interesting. And he was, you know, back to your point about Halston, you're reminding me, I had this whole tangent that I cut because I was like, this is getting too far afield about uh, Pierre Cardin oh, and yeah. how he had tried to be like, Oh, you you can now buy Pierre Cardin cigarettes and Pierre Cardin hair dryers and all this other stuff, and it, he just like cheapened the brand too much and it flopped. But Ralph was the one to first pull it off. Like I think my parents have like I, I checked and I was like, oh my god, mom, did you know your forks are made by Ralph Lauren? And she's like, I had no idea. What? <laughs> yeah, she was like, I just got these at a department store. I had no idea. That's not how my mom talks. But I feel like um, that idea that like. Ralph branched out into everything. Like you could buy a Ralph Lauren stapler and you'd be like, that's a nice stapler. You wouldn't be like Ralph Lauren's cheap, you know? Why do you think it didn't work for Pierre Cardin? I think it's because he was coming from the French system. I think it was, be no, really. Like, I think what it was are you like, doing? <laughs> what are you doing? Exactly. Because it was like, oh my God, like you're making gowns and now you're making pencil sharpeners. Like, what are you doing? But I think for Ralph, it was like, oh, you've always been making mass produced accessible stuff and the key thing is he always did it well like ralph lauren stuff is not uniformly but by and large pretty high quality yeah and that's the other thing and that's so american like well okay i do have a really nice ralph lauren ralph lauren oh my god ralph lauren it just sounds fancier it's like when you say i know instead of target <laughs> but i just love that we all do it that we're like ralph lauren but like we he's class him up french <laughs> like, yeah. even though he's the most american thing ever <laughs> yeah I love it. Um, but I do have like a Ralph Lauren skirt that I got from Beacon's Closet. And it was like love it. really nice. And the retail on it, because it was like an unworn, like new with tags. So I was able to see the price before I got it like severely discounted. But it was like $300. And I was like. Yep. <laughs> that was the other thing. I had no idea that Ralph made stuff that nice until I, until I started talking to the low heads. Mm. And they were showing me things that were like, oh, yeah, this is, you know, a, a $700 shirt. I was like, get out. What? And but it's it's so real. And that's the other thing. Like he has there are these levels. There's nice Ralph and there's a four. There's like cheap Ralph. And and it's really funny. And people love it. People really, really love it. Like and the I other day, I realized my, that people love it because love you would it. think that like if he was starting out with this like mass marketing when he made the pivot to like higher end stuff richer clients would not want it because for as long as he's been doing production, it's been associated with like the mainstream. Yeah. Um, but I know Audrey Hepburn was wearing Ralph Lauren. <laughs> yeah. No, <laughs> it's like he, clients. he did it well. And that was the thing, you know, his cowboy stuff, his workwear stuff. It was like good. Like it did the job. I used to think that I didn't want movies about women to be written by men. You know, I was like, get out of here. You don't know my experience. Like, get a but job. then I started seeing movies with female protagonists written by men, but they just did a great job. It's like, oh, you actually just like interviewed people and did research and like, great, good job. And I feel like that's sort of what it was with Ralph. He wasn't preppy. He wasn't a cowboy. He wasn't a rancher. He wasn't a worker, but he just like 
did a lot of research and did a very good job. And everyone was sort of like, this is fine. Mm. I think it also maybe helps that like, as we were talking about with the whole prep and the cowboy style, how they are kind of like more inclusive styles with like less yes. gatekeeping to begin with. Yes, um, totally. So uh, final couple of questions because this has got, this has been really great. You are This is so fun. <laughs> oh, thanks. What do you think is going to happen to the IV and prep style in the future? Do you have any predictions on how it will evolve and maybe how social media plays a role in that evolution? I mean, I'm such a social media dinosaur. Like you, I actually <laughs> want to ask you that question. Like, I don't know. I don't do, I don't do it very well. So I'm going to ask you that. But I think the way that I'm seeing it change is I do think it's getting more like sporty, like actually for sports and about sports, like for brands like recreational habits and like things that are about like playing tennis. And and I think that's also just because a lot more people started to do outdoor sports like during the pandemic. And it became I don't know if you had friends who also like started playing tennis during the pandemic. Uh, but that was me. I started. Yes. <laughs> But it became such a thing and being like, oh, my God, like I got a court. So it's like, oh, you you got a court like <laughs> it became it like in the park, you know, at these like mm -hmm. public courts. If you could reserve one that was like prestige. Right. But I think more and more people started doing outdoor recreation. Um, and so, yeah, I think they are becoming a bit more about like mixing athleisure with Ivy. And Ivy is arguably the original sort of athleisure. So it's sort of a natural trajectory I think but how are you seeing social media change it it's weird because I feel like language has evolved so much and I don't see like the terms ivy or preppy being tossed around anymore but people yeah. have developed styles that are heavily influenced by like you know like the whole old money aesthetic very heavily influenced by prep and you know there's also this new sporty aesthetic that's getting out called bloquette I don't know if you've heard of it. No. Okay. It's like wearing like Adidas sport shorts, but like kind of like in a coquette way. So you'll like wear your hair in braids with like bows, but then you're also like a little sporty. Okay. So it's like a nice little combo. I didn't think it would work, but I've been kind of like that's cute. influenced my Pinterest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love but that. I mean, that's like a little bit further off. It's just... um. When you were talking about sportswear, that's what I th thought about and how things are getting more sporty. But I don't know. I think also just with like the ability we have now to like look into archives and there is that renewed interest in like 90s runways and early 2000s when I think prep was very popular in yeah. a weird way, in like yeah. a different way that's not Ivy, but still something. And so I think people are going to bring back like certain elements but I don't think it's going to be in the same kind of like it's not going to be like a full revival of the Ivy style I 100%. think it's more like elements of it like certain items of clothing yeah exactly exactly I think you're right but I also think it's interesting I mean I'd love your take on this but I feel like the other thing that social media does is it it like separates clothing from the world you know mm -hmm. what I mean like you can wear an outfit that's like for Instagram and like for pictures and not and I think when we talk about like what are people actually wearing it's like well what are they posting pictures of themselves wearing and then like what right. are they actually going to like buy eggs in you know like how do they actually live their lives day to day mm -hmm. and I think social media has like you know it's taken clothing out of 
location, context, weather. Right. Like, the clothes don't need to fit your environment anymore. And like how many of us actually are in a preppy environment? Like very, 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 very few. And right. so that's the other thing is like, it's almost the perfect outfit to be like home reading, like <laughs> wearing a little outfit. You, you know what I mean? Well, do you get dressed up to do errands or anything? I mean, I do just because I, but that's because <laughs> I'm like not on Instagram. I'm like, well, someone's got to see how cute I look. <laughs> I, I feel like I have, um, I actually do have Pinterest boards where I have like my everyday outfit inspiration and then my, what I call my event outfit inspiration because I do think that like I mostly only take photos of myself when I'm at an event yeah and so totally have this skewed perception that this is just how I look all the time but I do have this secret Pinterest board of what I look like every day is it secret yeah it's secret oh my god you have to see me to believe (laughs) fascinating privilege for New Yorkers only to be able to see everything happen But I think that's, like, totally normal, and that's kind of, like, the way that people have been always operating. Like, you do have your nice dresses that you wear to, like, a wedding or, like, prom or a very special event, and then you have your school outfits, and then you have, like, your yoga outfit or whatever. But I do think because maybe there's a lot of people who aren't taking photos of themselves at every single moment, it has – it's going to be interesting with archiving to look back and how historians are going to – be able to parse through that and be like, okay, well, this is not what everyone was wearing, but these are all the photos we have of people wearing this. It's going to be so confusing. Uh, Truly. And then that's the other thing is like, it creates these subcultures of like people wearing like clown core shit, you know, (laughs) that they're like, you know, and people are like, identify with this. This is my aesthetic. But like, do they wear it in the world? I don't know. Like, debatable. It's interesting. I also do think that I've heard less about aesthetic discourse in the last year which is interesting like I feel like 2021 it was so explosive I think probably like you were saying because we were going out of quarantine and people were like what's gonna happen (laughs) (laughs) um so I think that's interesting because so many people were talking about how aesthetics have like taken over and then to just see it kind of the idea of being having an aesthetic actually be like a micro trend in itself is very meta (laughs) yes Yes, 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 yes. But it's interesting. I mean, I was reading all these uh, books about like the 60s. And it's so Mm -hmm. funny because in like 1965, people were like, there are no trends anymore. We're all free. There is like no distinct (laughs) way that we dress in our time anymore. (laughs) When you really look at it, you're like, oh, yeah, everybody was dressed sort of crazy i mean i talk about this in the podcast like this was the era of retro fashion if you look at you know the beatles and sergeant pepper they're dressing edwardian like it was crazy people were just dressing in whatever time they wanted and yet still we can look back and be like that's obviously from 1965 yeah and so i do think that we are in another era like that where we're like Mm. anything goes and that's true and at the same time just like in 1965, like we will look back and be like, oh, yes, that was the 2010s. Right. Even though right now it feels like anything goes. You know what I mean? Like people are like, is it true? Is it not true? It's like, yes, and like both things are true. I feel like every era thus far has had like 
trends within silhouettes, like something more subtle that kind of permeates through all the different trends that exist. So like, you know, going back to the 60s, like there would be these very, you know, historical embellishments, but then the base would still be like a shift dress. Right. Um. So I think that's kind of similar now where the aesthetics that I do see around like mermaid core is kind of on the rise these days. And like Y2K has kind of been forever present in the last couple of years, but they're all like low waist mm-hmm. at least. Or like there's this kind of like slinky texture to a lot of the yeah. clothes that even though they belong in different aesthetics, they have that um, continuity, that thorough line. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's true. It's funny. I think the overarching line, like the thing we're going to look back and be like, oh, that was the 2010s is like tattoos. And I think it's oh, like that is like that's a big one. Yeah. But I think it's a big one. And I think all these like slinky styles, all of them are about like showing skin and like mm. showing our bodies. And it means that the onus is not so much on the clothes anymore to like say who we are. And I think that's part of why people can like try on so many different things is because they like have yeah. these other markers on them, you know? And also I feel like plastic surgery in itself is probably going to be looked back as like a fashion trend yeah that's true we but, all have the same face yeah oh. <laughs> wait okay sidebar before we end this have you seen all that discourse about the smartphone face and no. the idea that like some actors in tv shows who are in period dramas or whatever they don't look believably in that period because they have a smartphone face aka a face that knows what a smartphone is like who's an example of that so a lot of people were criticizing Camilla Marone, I think her name is, from Daisy and the Six. Okay. People said Timothy Chalamet doesn't look believably 15th century in that King King movie that he was in. Huh. My friend it's actually funny, made a tweet I... that got a lot of backlash. She was like a bit of ahead of the time because now I think people would support it. But uh, there were talks that like Ariana Grande was going to do Meg from Hercules. And my friend was like her... Uh, username is Modern Girls, so she's also like a YouTuber. But she was like, um, Ariana Grande does not have an ancient Greek face. <laughs> and all these like Ariana stands were dragging her for filth because they were like, what are you supposed like what does that even mean? But Oh my God. <laughs> no, but it is weird. It is true that like faces have trends in this fascinating way. And I was thinking about that because I was thinking about um like Gina Gershon and what's her name? Cindy, the supermodel. Cindy Crawford? Yeah. You know, they like had, no, but really, like they have these like different sort of like stern kind of chisely faces. I was like, oh, that was super 90s. Yeah. Like these sort of like chiseled equine faces. That's sort of a thing. And like the modern face is so much like softer. And you know what I mean? It's so funny. Well, like as Taylor Swift said, was like everybody's a sexy baby or something. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Well said. Well, on that note, (laughs) thank you so much for joining me today, Avery. Um, This was so fun. This was so fun. Do you have anything in the future that we can look out for? Do you have anything to um, plug so that we can find you on? Because you said you're not you're a social media dinosaur, but you've got to have something. Well, I mean, I was on Twitter, and then that got ripped out from under me, and now I'm like, <laughs> I'm lost. Um, I have a Substack, but it's mostly just like, Ooh. if you sign up, I'll just 
email you whenever the episode comes out to send you assets and links and pictures. So I hope it's useful. It's articlesofinterest.substack.com. Amazing. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.